brought to you by Chemistry. Hello and welcome to Brought to You by Chemistry with me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. Today is the final episode in our series on air quality and what better way to conclude something like this in a light-hearted way. Let's hear about the connections between climate change and air quality. Two main questions, are the problems connected and are the solutions as simple as we might think? Joining us today are two experts within those fields, so let's hear from them. My name is Sean Beavers. I'm a reader in atmospheric modelling. I work for the Environmental Research Group, um, and that's part of the School of Public Health at Imperial College in London. Yeah, hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so I'm Steve Arnold. I'm a professor of atmospheric composition uh, at the University of Leeds. Um, and I guess my background is in understanding how things are processed in the atmosphere chemically, how they're moved around by the winds, etc., and interactions of those processes with climate and air quality. Ooh, I like that. I like the introduction and you told me like what you do sort of day to day. I like, I like that. Uh, so, uh, Sean, come on, come on. You gotta, you gotta come back with that. Tell me about what you're currently working on. Tell me about your work. I want to, I want to know about that. Yeah. So my work split into two main areas. One's related to policy. So I've been working for many years with the greater London, uh, greater London authority testing, some of their air pollution policies, really from congestion charging all the way up to the ultra-low emission zone, which has been in the news quite a lot recently. Um, And we also uh, undertake research into the exposure uh, of people to air pollution in different health endpoints, so looking at the associations between air pollution and health. And and what we're most, I suppose, most interested in, uh, in at the moment is looking at the uh, co-benefits and potential trade-offs uh, between net zero policies and air pollution. Okay, give me give me like a tiny little snippet of that. What, what are some nice trade-offs there? What, what are some balances? What are some trade-offs? Hit me. Hit me with that. Hit me with that. Uh, well, um, so we're really interested in looking at the, the impacts of uh, introduction of electric vehicles and also changes to sort of heating for domestic residences or commercial buildings. And one of the sort of uh, trade-offs for electric vehicles, for example, is um, that even though they reduce CO2, obviously, which is the main aim of introducing electric vehicles to the fleet, um, they uh, potentially increase non-exhaust emissions of PM. So things like um, tyre wear, road wear and uh, resuspension. You know what? That, that's that's quite interesting because with like the whole ULES and everything going around, you hear lots of different pieces of information. So I quite like... I quite like hearing that sort of the balance there. Um, it's quite interesting to me. And, you know, when we talk about like electric vehicles, for instance, the thing that I think about is sort of the us moving away from fossil fuels, you know, tackling climate change. And I suppose this is one for you, Stephen, a bit more. Like, could you sort of explain how air quality and climate change are linked That question might require an answer, which is very long, but I'll try and summarize. It's very complex, I guess. So, and it's definitely a two-way street. So we know that certain air pollutants affect climate. So if we think about species that are emitted directly, for example, like particulate matter, we know that that can, can cool the local climate because it scatters sunlight, cools the surface. Um, Small particles are also involved in the formation of cloud droplets, which means that, you know, if you change the number of particles in the atmosphere, that will change cloud properties, which will reflect more or less sunlight back to space. So that will that will affect climate. 
And then, of course, we have the greenhouse gases. So I guess most of us think about things like CO2 when we think about greenhouse gases, but there are also other greenhouse gases which are more short-lived um, and take part in chemical processes in the atmosphere. Um, and we tend to think of those as air pollutants as well. So, so ozone is one example. So tropospheric ozone, um, which is formed near the surface, is an air pollutant. It, it's bad for you. It's bad for the respiratory system, but it's also greenhouse gas. Um, so certain air pollutants can affect uh, climate directly. And then on the other side of the street, in the other direction, then you know changes in the climate system, changes in weather patterns will also affect air pollution. So there's a number of ways that, that that can happen. One, I guess, perhaps one of the most obvious is changes in weather patterns themselves or you know wind patterns, precipitation, uh, changes in cloud cover. <clears throat> All of those things can affect um, the processing of pollutants in the atmosphere, how they're distributed and where they might meet individuals or meet their kind of endpoints in terms of having an effect. Um, there's also other ways, for example, uh, with regard to natural emissions. So there are certain components of the Earth system where changes in environmental parameters will affect emissions that are coming from the surface. Um, and that might be things like dust. So if you change wind patterns, you might change dust emissions. I guess one of the most obvious, which is a very big topic now, are, are fires, you know, vegetation fires, forest fires, where we know that a warmer, drier climate in certain areas of the world will manifest in bigger more extensive fires with higher emissions. So certainly places like the Western US, places like Siberia, Canada, very recently we're seeing increases in air pollution coming, coming from fires. Uh, and there are also kind of more interesting chemical processes happening. So the biosphere is also a huge source of reactive carbon. So there are very reactive molecules, hydrocarbon molecules that are emitted from vegetation. Um, and those emissions are very dependent on things like temperature. Um, so as we change the climate, there is a response in the natural biosphere to emit more reactive material into the atmosphere, which affects air pollution. So I can go into more detail on that as you wish, but that's a kind of summary anyway of the, of the main interactions. I mean, that was a pretty good summary. You are definitely right. It is, it's really complex there. Yeah. And sort of that link between climate change and air quality, sort of this, I guess, sort of this two-way street, this back and forth and back and forth. But in between that, you know, there are us, you know, us humans on here on this on this planet and i suppose my question for 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 sean there is like is air pollution and climate change and like is it impacting our health i feel as though that's an obvious question and the answer is yes so i guess my follow-on question what is really my main question is how how is it happening and like do we have evidence for this okay so yeah so yes you, you're right the answer is yes the, the evidence um, of the impacts of air pollution is actually growing. So what happens periodically is um, that the World Health Organization and other organizations kind of review the science in its totality. So look at the scientific evidence from around the world and, and then draw a view as to where the health evidence is for air pollution. And um, uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, recently did this and re uh, produced a report in 2021, which showed not only is the health evidence getting stronger for air pollution, but it's also getting stronger for effects that are at lower and lower concentrations. And, and so much so that they actually revised, they, they produced sort of guideline and target values, which other sort of states around the world use, use in their air pollution policy. Um, and they revise their targets down considerably. So um, 
PM 2.5, for example, which is one of the, you know, the pollutant with probably the strongest health evidence, um, uh, was revised down from 10 micrograms down to five. And for nitrogen dioxide, went from 40 micrograms as a standard um, uh, right the way down to 10. So, so the evidence is growing for all of these things. And, and it's one of the biggest environmental uh, issues in relation to health, I think, air pollution. For, from, from a climate point of view, I mean, the health effects not only are linked to air pollution, as Steve uh, um, described earlier, uh, but obviously they've got it's got a much wider sort of health aspect to it. So we, we're talking about extreme weather events, heat itself. You know, the, temp the high temperatures are, um, uh, have effects on people's health. Um, uh, Water-related health impacts, vector-borne diseases, food production, malnutrition. You know, sea level rise. It, it, there's a huge list uh, of climate-related uh, health problems. So, so from both aspects from the air pollution and the climate aspects, there's certainly a need to sort of work very hard to reduce and minimise these impacts. I think one thing that's interesting is the intersection between heat and air pollution, because we know during events where we have you know, heat waves, for example, very extreme temperatures, even in the UK, we know that they, those heat events tend to coincide with periods when air pollution is also high. Right? So the, you know, the very warm conditions that we have, even periodically for a few days, usually would lead to enhancements in air pollution concentrations. And part of that is because of the reasons I described earlier, where, you know, maybe you have very clear skies, very still weather with not much wind going on, very sunny conditions that are conducive to atmospheric chemistry processing. So it tends to lead to enhancements in, in air pollution. And I think, as Sean just indicated, you know, the, the heat, stress, health effects of climate are, are becoming well understood, I think. And also air pollution, the evidence to support, you know, the, the fact that you're, if you're exposed to air pollution, especially in the long term, you, you will have a higher risk of developing certain health conditions. I think that evidence is also getting stronger. I think perhaps where more work is needed, and maybe I don't know if Sean would agree with this, but is it that intersection where you know the, the combined effect of heat and air quality, I think, is somewhere where you know we need to get a better understanding, I think, in terms of how exactly how dangerous that, that combination is during these periods. I, I, no, I entirely agree with Steve's point there. I think this... <clears throat> There are a number of things that need to develop, I think, in terms of exposure of people to air pollution and potential exposure of people to heat. So uh, as he rightly points out, heat and air pollution often coincide. I mean, uh, forest fires, for example, happen at the height, you know, the points where there's very high temperatures. And so you get these huge peaks of PM and you also get these very high temperatures. And so disentangling which of the effects, you know, are, are really causing some of the health issues is going to be a challenge. But also you need to uh, look at what people's exposure are, uh, is to some of these um, pollutants and some of this heat, and, and what we're working towards uh, in, in the air pollution community is trying to determine much more what people's actual exposure is rather than just what the ambient air pollution concentration is so we want to know what the air pollution and the temperature is inside because you spend a lot of your time inside you spend virtually all of your time inside mostly and and so that's the 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 way we're moving in um in looking at people's exposure to air pollution and and, and the, what has to be coincident with that is is the sort of epidemiological methods which look at you know we're looking at a health outcome and seeing whether PM or whether temperature or whether some other factor 
is actually a determinant of that health outcome. That, that sort of epidemiology um, study has to sort of develop in the same area. So use these different metrics of exposure, these different metrics of temperature in order to study these uh, these events. And I think, uh, you know, it's kind of a, an area that's developing quite rapidly. And I think it's an area that will, uh, will be researched for the, you know, the next decade to come, really. Looking at that, you know, continued research, like you say, in the next decade to come, obviously, as we move forward, you know, as society moves forward, as, as the world moves forward, we're trying to to solve the problem of climate change. Do you think that with that back and forth, you know, between air quality and climate change, how they're linked and how they affect one another, will our efforts to to tackle climate change impact air quality, like in a hopefully positive, but also could it be a negative way? Please tell me it's positive. So, well, I mean, yeah, the short answer is it's likely to be positive. I mean, if you implement emission control policies that are designed to reduce uh, combustion of fossil fuels or improve combustion efficiency of fossil fuels, then that will likely lead to reductions in, in emitted air pollutants, right? I mean, that's a kind of very basic assumption, but you're right that there is nuance and there are subtleties to those interactions. Um, so I guess one thing we know is that if we target emissions of of the constituents that are most harmful to our health, which, which as Sean mentioned, is, is particulate matter, PM2.5, these very small particles. If we implement measures that very rapidly control those emissions, actually the, the near-term effect of that on climate will be a warming, which might sound counterintuitive, but it relates to the point I made earlier, which is that you know, particle, particulate matter in the atmosphere is scattering radiation. It's providing a kind of cooling, right? And the lifetime of those particles in the atmosphere is very short. It's about a week on average. So if we were to, you know, immediately shut off all particulate emissions from, I don't know, motor vehicles and power generation, let's say, then, you know, we would very quickly see an improvement in air quality, but we'd also see a response in temperatures because we're removing some of that cooling effect from the atmosphere. And of course, most of the warming is coming from CO2, right, which has a very long lifetime in the atmosphere. So we're removing that cooling effect from particles, but the CO2 is still there, still giving us a warming effect. So in the near term, we'd expect a warming um, so I guess you can have a debate about whether, you know, <laughs> I guess we would never consider this because it's crazy, right? But, you know, you could argue, oh, no, we should keep particulate matter in the atmosphere because we don't want to have rapid warming in the near term. But I guess the argument should be that, you know, the, the, the massive benefits we'd expect to, to public health from reducing PM have to be prioritized because we know that the, the real warming over the long term is really dominated by the CO2 anyway. So I think, you know, that, that policy interaction is interesting, but I think we've seen that in Europe and North America, especially, we've had a, a prioritization of that kind of, you know, improvement in air quality from, from pollution control measures. Whether the interaction, whether the kind of co-effects co on climate have been considered adequately, I don't know. I mean, I think that's still a kind of growing realization that these two things need to be considered together, I think. We talk about these, these back and forths, and I've heard the terms co-benefits and trade-offs when talking about this. And I suppose both of you have an answer to this, but maybe look at it in a different way. But what do you mean when we say like co-benefits and trade-offs? Let's start, uh, I'm going to start with you, Sean. Um, yeah, so uh, a co-benefit. So if, if you're aiming to tackle climate, for instance, so you, your policy aim is to reduce CO2 emissions for, uh, for, um, for good reason. And as a consequence of that, you reduce air pollution and um, improve people's health, you know, by reducing PM or by... Uh, reducing NO2, 
um, then that's a co-benefit. It wasn't necessarily your first intention, but it's something that you benefited from all the same. Oh, I like that. Steve, hit me with some trade-offs then. So trade-offs is the opposite, where you implement a policy designed to achieve a certain outcome, for example, um, reducing CO2. Uh, but what happens is that that measure that you introduce to reduce CO2 leads to a, a negative impact on something else. So that might be an increase in air pollution, uh, for example. So that would be a trade-off. I guess a good example of that is, and again, Sean probably knows a lot more about this than I do, but a good example of that is, you know, um, there was a policy in the UK to give um, tax breaks to ownership of diesel because diesel is more efficient and it emits less CO2 per kilometre driven. So there was a kind of encouragement for people to take up diesel vehicles. Um, so vehicle excise duty was was lower on diesels. Uh, but of course, diesels are much worse in terms of their emissions of particulate matter and also of nitrogen dioxide. So that led to a, you know, partly led to a, 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 a kind of um, a worsening of air quality because there was a larger penetration of diesel into the car fleet. So that would be a kind of trade-off, I guess. Sean, you look like you have something to say on that. Like, as soon as he said diesel, uh, you sort of went, okay, so I have to be very, very, very uh, clear when I follow on with what I'm about to say next. What are you about to say next? Well, I mean, mean, Steve's right. It's a really good example. So, you know, Europe generally... um, dieselized their fleet for the benefit of, of climate for, for perfectly good reasons but because uh, diesels as he said emit more NOx, they emit more particles um we, we had a um a slowing down of the improvements of air quality that's a better way for us and, and then <laughs> <laughs> and then as a as a well and all encapsulated within that it became yeah. the vw scandal of course where they they were you know they were uh, trying to use defeat well we're using defeat devices to try and pass sort of regulatory tests whereas you know the actual on-road performance of diesel vehicle was uh, was was considerably worse than the test would, uh, would show and so you know it, it, we had measurements and they, they were absolutely critical in in identifying this as an issue um, and eventually a number of tests were undertaken and of course it all became public knowledge and uh, and uh, I think everybody knows the story after that looking at things that were done in the past and now looking at work to to think about the the future um sean are there are there any types of modeling that you know that we have available now that we can do that can aid us in in predicting the quality of air for the future you know and that might help when we think about policies to put in and whatnot uh, yeah, well, yes, there are. I mean, that's essentially what my job is. So well, that's good. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so we we use um, a, a couple of types of models. We use a, a model called a chemical transport model. It's it's sort of describes as best it can the physics and the chemistry of the atmosphere uh, and the processes therein. And uh, and we use that with meteorological data, which is also from a model, and uh, emissions data from all the different sources um, that, that we have information for. So we try and capture all of those. And that gives us air pollution concentrations at quite a, a large area, sort of up to sort of continental scale. What happens then is you sort of nest down um, with ever-increasing detail towards the area that you're really interested in. So in, in, in our case, would be the UK. And what you end up with is a model that can give you 
hourly concentrations of, of the sort of pollutants that you're concerned with um, uh, up to a two kilometer scale. So sort of background uh, pollution concentrations. Uh, so then what we do is we superimpose on top of that a little uh, sort of road scale model. And that gives us the sort of detailed air pollution concentrations from your local road network, which aren't really encapsulated well by a two kilometer scale model. And that, and that gives the very, very sharp differences between air pollution concentrations closer road and, and, and also not very far away. So we get all the way down to sort of scales of the order of sort of tens of meters really for and that that that's a much better description of uh, of what people's air pollution exposure is and then on top of that we have an indoor model which is we we, we sort of exchange outdoor air pollution indoors and include indoor sources within our indoor model and then you can actually determine what people's exposure is indoors as well and so you can use those models and you can make future forecasts, particularly the outdoor one is, is the most common one to use. You, you change your emissions forecast, you can change your meteorological forecasts, uh, you can test different policies for different time horizons for different years in the future, it could be 2030 or 2040, and then you get um, a, a concentration, a new concentration, and that's your future forecast. And you can look at your model uncertainty, and you can test a number of different policies in order to get a sort of coherent story of, uh, of how, uh, how whatever policy you wanted to test, be it about climate change or about air pollution on its own, uh, what, what effect it's likely to have on people's exposure. And then you can, you can actually calculate the health impacts from those, uh, from those models. If, you, if we didn't have models, what would you do? What would your other job be? <laughs> I, do, I, I don't know. I, I've no idea. I'd, I, quite like to, I quite like sailing, so I'll probably be a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just sack this off. I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm on a boat. yeah I'll, go, I'll go, and, go and sail a boat. <laughs> <laughs> right now, we are finding it more and more important to focus on air quality and climate change, you know, taking those actions, making change. Now, from your work, from your modeling, like, I'm not, I don't want to say, hey, in the future, things are going to get massively better. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fantastic. Me, and by extension, the brought to you by chemistry listeners want to know, do you expect to see like different types of pollution in the future? Not necessarily no pollution, but like maybe different types. Are we, are we moving on to what? What's the future of pollution? Ooh, that's a good album title. Future of pollution. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a very good question. Uh, and I guess this is where we do rely on the models, right? So I mean the models are the only tool we have that can process all the information we have on what might happen to climate in future, weather patterns, temperatures, precipitation. And then also Sean said, you know, taking in the, the emissions data that we have about what policies might mean for emissions of different um, constituents in the atmosphere from different sources and different locations. So the IPCC actually, as, as you know, and the listeners are probably well aware, the IPCC undertake their, um, their multi-model climate model assessment. So they run all the world's different climate models with exactly the same information fed into them. And then, you know, those, I guess they're best known in terms of their use in predicting future temperature, future sea ice, future sea level rise, et cetera, et cetera. But actually more recently in the recent IPCC assessment, um, more processes were included in those models that are capable of simulating atmospheric chemistry and considering things like air pollution emissions and the processing of that air pollution in the atmosphere. So the first thing to say, I guess, is that these models are, 
very large scale compared to the models that, that Sean was describing. So, you know, you're not going to get how is air pollution going to change on, I don't know, in Trafalgar Square <laughs> uh, in 2050 compared to present day because it, it, they're, not, they're not capable of resolving that amount of spatial detail. But what they do allow us to do is get very long-term simulations, you know, over multi-decades, thinking about how the background air pollution is evolving in response to different policies. So we've done some work using output from these models um, and looking at things like the World Health Organization um, targets that Sean was mentioning earlier for, for particulate matter in particular. Uh, and we've also looked at kind of co-benefits, as we discussed earlier, with regard to different climate policies and what they imply for, for air pollution exposure. And then we can also do uh, health impact assessment modeling, similar to Sean, to translate those changes in, in particulate matter to um, essentially to, to health impacts. And generally, we use premature mortality um, when we quantify that. Um, so what we see anyway, so to get to the answer, what we see uh, from these simulations is that if we apply a, a kind of um, a strong decarbonization scenario in the future, so that would be consistent with a one and a half degree or two degree global mean warming by 2100. Um, and then we compare that with a kind of you know, middle of the road, three degree warming. Um, if we do go for that more stringent emission control to achieve that lesser warming target, then actually that results in a strong co-benefit to public health from, from air pollution. And that's because those very stringent emission control policies are not only reducing CO2 emissions, they're also reducing emissions of, um, of air pollutants. So actually by 2050, relative to a kind of standard scenario, these very strong decarbonization scenarios could prevent about 3 million deaths a year due to, due to air pollution. Well, this is a question from both of you, but uh, let's start with you. Are you hopeful that major cities in the UK can improve their air quality? I was going to say around the globe, but you know, let's say, let's start in the UK. Are you hopeful that major cities can improve their air quality? I mean, are you asking me? I mean, I think, yeah, I think we already are, right? I mean, we already have. I mean, if you look at NO2 as, a, as an example, then, you know, there's been a lot of to and fro, a lot of problems in the UK specifically with NO2, and Sean knows a lot more about that than I do. But, you know, that it is coming down. It has come down quite quite markedly. So in terms of exposure to, to NO2, nitrogen dioxide pollution, um, you know, most city centres in the UK have improved their position compared with say 10 years ago. And, and in fact, what we've seen in, in a couple of cities, at least two with regard to implementation of clean air zones, and Leeds is one of them, which is why I know a bit about it. You know, the, the reason the Leeds clean air zone was eventually not implemented is because monitoring showed that actually without doing anything, the, the vehicle fleet had changed to such an extent that the NO2 compliance had, had actually happened, right? So if you're interested in complying with the, the UK um, air quality target for, for NO2 as an annual mean, then Leeds was already doing that without even implementing the clean air zone. And that's just because people are starting to drive cleaner vehicles. I, I, I think the only thing worth pointing out, especially related to clean air zones, I suppose, is that, that, that you know, in a lot of the city, well, we, we, we work sort of a lot in London, so um, it doesn't meet the sort of WHO target. So, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we, we're using potentially quite old yeah. And slightly out of date sort of targets to aim at. And so miraculously we meet them and then all of a sudden we look at the WHO targets and they're, they're now, you know, rather than 40, they're now 10 for NO2. Yeah. And so and suddenly we're, we're back in the, pro, you know, problem area. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, you know, it's perception as much as it is anything else. So I th still think there's uh, plenty of work to do. 
But I think he's right in saying that, you know, the, the fleet's cleaned up and will continue to clean up and the introduction of electric vehicles is, is happening. So so that will continue. So for things like blue, for NO2, it is, it is going to improve. But it just means that more is going to have to be done with other sources. So it's going to be the non-vehicle related sources that are going to, you know, we're going to start to look at. And that's kind of why I was pointing to things like heating because in cities that's going to be a, a big aspect of, of improvements to things like NO2 because you know gas combustion is a, a source of NOx and so we have to control that too and, and I think one other thing that we ought to sort of touch on is that um, we mentioned the indoor environment and people's exposure indoors that uh, is becoming increasingly important as far as people's overall exposure uh, especially as outdoor air pollution improves, but you can get distinct benefits from um, uh, from you know stopping using gas cookers, for instance, because they're a source of NOx and they're a source of indoor PM as well. Uh, but you, you have to be wary of things like if you insulate your homes and you make your home airtight, that you, you you're more prone to it, uh, air pollutants that are sourced from indoors, and so you've got to you've got to ventilate your homes cleverly in order to avoid these sort of trade-off issues in your in your home environment. And I think that, for me, that's the thing that's going to sort of bring people along with you in the, you know, in the sort of grand scheme of changing the, the way in which they do things, you know, buying heat pumps, you know, not using gas cookers and so on. It's kind of making air pollution and health a very almost like a personalized thing it's got to be relatable uh, to, to people you can talk about meeting air quality guideline standards until you're blue in the face but nobody really knows what that means or whether it's a good or i mean generally they know it's a good thing but they don't really it doesn't really mean anything to their sort of everyday lives so i think you know this idea of, of of health and sort of your personal exposure including the indoor environments actually a key part of uh, getting people on board uh, you know, telling somebody that if you improve air pollution, it will reduce their childhood asthma, you know, that sort of thing is far more convincing than you're going to meet 10 micrograms PM 2.5 standards. So so I think, um, you know, the public health aspects of it are really important. Now, uh, with with sort of this, this public health and, and policy thing in, in mind, are we are we actually seeing the benefits of of reduction in pollutants are we, are we seeing that yet when it comes to like health outcomes when it comes to public health well if, if you do the health calculations as, as steve mentioned uh, you know you can you can do health impact assessments and, and look at the you know before and after a policy and work out what the health benefits are and you can do the costs and, and the costs are generally always uh, less than the benefits that you you get you, you you generally see that things are improving but there's a kind of a whole other sort of area of research, which is where people try to understand what the, you know, the effects of air pollution are on people's health. And, and that sort of said, you know, the, the, the increasing evidence is that there are health effects at lower and lower concentrations. So we're kind of, you know, we're working towards improving air quality. And at the same time, the air pollution and health research community are sort of saying, yeah, but you need to try a little bit harder. So yes, things are improving. Amazing. Well, this, I think that that is all for us today. This has been absolutely incredible. Like, thank, thank you both for, for joining us here today. Uh, you've been fantastic. I, you've enjoyed yourself, right? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's been good. And that's it for this season of Brought to You by Chemistry. Thank you so much for joining us through this journey into air quality. If you haven't already, then please go back and listen to our previous seasons where we've covered light-hearted topics like plastic pollution, battery technology, and antimicrobial resistance. I've been Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and as always, bye for now. Bye.